Hey, welcome to the show. I hope you had a great Christmas and are looking forward to a great new year in 2023. You may know by now that the show is on a brief break until January 3rd, where I'll be back with some great new current event shows and some great new guest shows, along with a whole host of new content that I cannot wait to reveal to, to you guys. A little bit more about that will be revealed on the 1st, where I'll give some of the spoilers about what we're up to here at Indie Thinker. But for now, we're doing a best of current events show. And for those of you who have followed the show for any length of time, you'll know that what I try to do as a cultural apologist is provide Christian answers, biblical answers to things that are going on in our world, because I view so much of what is happening in the world as a direct result of us becoming post-Christian in the American West. And I think as we return to the ideas of Christianity, the thoughts and the truth of Christianity, it will be a remedy for a lot of what we're experiencing. So on the show today, we'll go back in time and look at some conversations like the one I had with Kirk Cameron or about Kirk Cameron, where he was just recently denied entrance into the public library to read his brand new kids book, while these same libraries were the ones that hosted Drag Queen Story Hour. So we'll talk about why Christianity is the controversial thing in our culture today and not drag queens for children. And then we'll also talk about uh, The Chosen and some of the controversy that happened this past year uh, with some of its some of its accusations that it has Mormon leaning. So I think I give some redemptive answers and thoughts on that whole thing and The Chosen as a whole. And then uh, we'll also dig in into the family-friendly, supposedly family-friendly drag shows that have been taking place all over the United States that even popped up in the backyard of my home in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, and so we'll look at those and talk about why they are happening more and more and what we can do about that. And then Shia LaBeouf's conversion as a kind of redemptive story, a beacon of hope, or at least this kind of this touch point in our society with this cultural figure who experiences God afresh and anew, and it becomes such a source of hope for him, especially when he is on a bed of suicide. So we'll talk about those things and more today on the Best of Current Events show. Of course, if you're going to do that, you have to start with Kirk Cameron, and that's where we start today, because the darling of Christianity is not faring so well as he goes on a book tour. He just recently created a new children's book, and he's hoping to reach families all over the United States in libraries, and Fox News just recently uh, did a report on how he's faring in terms of trying to reach families with the ideas of faith, biblical wisdom, and, uh, and the importance of family. So here's what Fox News had to say about that, that tour. Fox News reported on Wednesday that As You Grow, which celebrates family, faith, and biblical wisdom, won't be able to reach some scores of American children or their families in many U.S. cities. Cameron's publisher, Brave Books, told that rejections and non-responses from more than 50 public libraries have come through. Fox also noted that some libraries opting against featuring Cameron have played host to so-called drag queen story hours. 
Now, thank God that these libraries have come to the defense of children, and they are protecting kids against the predations of Kirk Cameron while they allow for Drag Queen Story Hour in their libraries. And that's just the point I want to make at the outset here, is that we have this really flawed understanding of what is actually damaging to children. In the past, I've highlighted the book I Am God's Dream by Matthew Paul Turner, how this homosexual um, man who left his wife and children wrote this kid's book, and that the idea behind it, yes, serves as the source of many Disney movies. This idea that that you should learn to accept who you are and know that who you are is exactly the way you should be. Sure, it is the premise of many, many Disney movies, but it's actually a very damaging narrative to kids. There is a sense in which you must come to appreciate who you are, your gifts, your talents, and your skills, but also with the knowledge that it's possible for you to be much more than you are. I believe it was C.S. Lewis who said, we do not know what man is, but we do know he is not what he can be. See, that is the kind of message that we need for children, to aspire towards being something that they may not presently be. It's actually deeply damaging to suggest that God is up in heaven consistently doting over his children and just dreaming about them all day long because there is nothing better than everything that they do. Well, of course, we know that's not true, that there are some things that need to change some behaviors and some attitudes, and there are some things about you that are absolutely not God's dream. And in fact, that pursuit and that knowledge brings purpose in your life to be something more than you presently are. So it's deeply damaging to suggest that you're fine the way you are and you never need to change, no matter what that may be. And of course, leftists don't believe that because they're deeply interested in pushing their ideas down the throats of children. And that's why Drag Queen Story Hour even exists. I want you to, real quickly on the screen, see the kind of businesses that support Drag Queen Story Hour. So I'll throw those up for you. And for those of you who are listening, uh, these businesses are places like PBS, HBO, Facebook, Google, Hulu, Microsoft, Yahoo, Intuit, Spotify, and surprise, surprise, Disney. Now, what I just showed you was from dragstoryhour.org, which is the organization that's behind bringing Drag Story Hour into libraries and the public school system all over America. And as I said before, some of those same libraries that had Drag Story Hour come to them are now saying, Kurt Cameron is too far. We draw a line in the sand and we cannot have Kurt Cameron spreading his vile message of Christianity. So this is why it's important that we expose these kind of things. See, what a society values will become its destiny. And delusional men cosplaying and making a mockery of womanhood cannot be the message that we really want to expose children to. And, and how Black Lives Matter has deeply prospered throughout this whole thing. But the place where George Floyd was actually killed um, is, is devastated now because of all of the aftermath actions of activists and rioters and looters. And so here's Candace speaking to a local pastor and showing kind of the town square where all those businesses used to be. And it's just, it's a desert town now. So here's that. As I'm looking around, there's so many um, empty shops on the block, things that are boarded up. How does that make you feel to see that? Is, is there ever going to be life again on this street? Well, I feel like there has been a tremendous loss of, of the way of life here has changed, the economy, the destruction of businesses. Most of the businesses here that were destroyed had 
the insurance would not be able to cover that. Right. And so it's a hard thing for people to rebuild themselves, especially after what they went through. So as you can see, it's an absolutely desolate place that used to be a thriving business square. And George Floyd's square is really a sad, sad tale because it's sad of certainly uh, for George Floyd and what took their place there and for the aftermath of his family and what they had to experience throughout all of that, whatever that may look like. Um, the documentary even goes into a little bit of detail how his family didn't really have a relationship with him. But, it, you know, I think it's a little bit overwrought. Whenever you lose somebody, even if you weren't close to them, it still hurts you. It hits close to home. But if we're going to talk about victims, we must also talk about the victims of the business owners and the people that used to have thriving businesses, one can only assume, in that area that has now been made desolate because of activists, looters, and rioters in the aftermath of George Floyd's death. So George Floyd's certainly a victim, but yeah, you have to also admit, so are these people who suffered the wrath of these misguided fools. Um, and, and there's also some other unintended victims throughout all of this. And I, I think this is perhaps maybe one of the most provocative pieces of the whole documentary as Candace Owens begins to show where the $70 million that came to Black Lives Matter actually went to. $3 million in LGBTQ organizations around our nation, uh, $3 million went from Black Lives Matter to these organizations. So here's kind of a supercut of all that money going to these places. $200,000 went to the Transgender Justice Funding Project. Another $200,000 went to the Transgender United Fund. Another $200,000 went to the Transgender Law Center. Another $200,000 went to Black Transgendered Media. Another $200,000 went to the Transgendered Variant and Intersex Justice Project. Another 200 k went to the Transgendered District. Another 200 k went to the St. James Infirmary. In continuation, the Center for Halstead received $200,000 from Black Lives Matter. They are Chicago's community center dedicated to securing the health and well-being of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, and queer people of Chicago. Similarly, we have the Audrey Lord Project, which received $200,000. Another $400,000 went to Transgender Advocates Knowledgeable Empowering, or TAKE. For example, an additional $200,000 was given to the House of Tulip. $200,000 that went to the Griffin Gracie Retreat and Educational Center, known as House of Gigi for short. So we see in the aftermath of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement, that we don't only see a reckoning of race in America and a resurgence of talking about race in America at an ironic time where perhaps there is greater freedom in America than at any other time, and we're speaking financial and, and otherwise. Uh, that is not to suggest that there are not issues that need to be addressed in ways in which uh, racism still exists in America. That's true, but it is so incredibly unimportant and uninvasive in the lives of average people that it really is almost not even worth discussing. Um, but suffice to say, one of the aftermath occurrences of, of the BLM uh, riots is not just a resurgence of talking about race, but also an odd kind of cropping up of 
trans identity and the LGBTQIA movement writ large. We see things like Drag Queen Story Hour in schools and and kid-friendly or family-friendly drag events all over the United States. And it's it's enough to make one sit back and scratch your head and say, where in the world are these things coming from? And it seems to be happening in more and more rapid pace. Just on the show not too long ago last week, we talked about this happening in Chattanooga, Tennessee, of all places. So where is this coming from? Where is this surge of, of trans activism really coming from? Well, inevitably, it cannot help but hap- be coming from the $3 million invested in these activist organizations. So this is not even a conspiracy theory thing. This is follow the money and just open your eyes kind of thing. As long as you're not gullible, you can clearly see that there's a paper paper trail to these organizations. When they have this large infusion of cash, then they're able to infiltrate the public school system and infiltrate cities around America. So in part, the Black Lives Matter movement is certainly responsible for the the rise of these kind of this LGBTQIA activism. Mass migration out of blue cities into predominantly red cities. So this is places like Austin and and Texas, and then other places in Florida. Fort Lauderdale, I think, received a lot of people, and and West uh, West Palm, and, and different other places in the south of Florida. And there's other red cities where this happened as well. One of the red cities that actually received a lot of people, especially from California, was Chattanooga. Now, it didn't really get on the map because Chattanooga is a little bit of a smaller city. But the one thing that really was unsettling for people living in these red cities is we did not know if the people coming from blue cities, from Chicago, New York City, LA, San Francisco, if these people would not only migrate, but migrate their values with them and and do so in a way that that creates the same problem that they were trying to get out of when they left their blue cities. Because the reality is, is that your morality will create the culture and this is what happened, by and large, in blue cities, along with bad policy. But uh, but that debate, I hope, will be settled by a video that I'm about to show you of a family-friendly, I should say, quote-unquote, family-friendly drag queen show that just took place in Chattanooga, Chattanooga, Tennessee. Now, before I show that video to you, I just want to preface it by saying this. The reason I think it's important to show you this is not just because Chattanooga is my backyard, but also because... There are people who felt like, I think, by and large, that this would never happen here. And I do believe that if it can happen in Chattanooga, it can happen anywhere. Because Chattanooga is not a very large city. It's middle of the road at at best and still predominantly, I would say, largely made up of families that hold conservative values. And so what we see today is that old Martin Niemöller quote coming to pass that first they came for this group of people, then they came for this group of people. And I didn't say anything because I wasn't in that group and I wasn't in that group. But then finally they came for me and there was nobody left to speak up. And so we're seeing that there is no place that is truly safe from the predations of the family-friendly drag queen show, as you'll see in this clip here.
Now, as much of a freak show as that was, I hate to belabor the point, but are, there are some things that I want to point out that I, that I hope you didn't miss. And the first one is this, is that as you can see, this small little girl is rubbing on the private parts of this mermaid, and this adult is doing nothing. Now, people are good at giving the benefit of the doubt, especially Christians. I know we don't have the best reputation as far as that's concerned, but I think that's mostly a lie. Christians are great at equivocating and saying, saying well, I don't know about that, and I mean, they, they could be doing this, and no, this is... The reality is, in a normal world, when an adult has a small child rubbing on them in that area, they pull away as quickly as possible and say, hey, no, you can rub the sequins on my leg or something like that, but don't rub in that area. But it just shows that in these kind of these kind of settings, that those kind of mores and those social cues don't actually fly. Um, it's, it's a no-holds-barred freak fest where small children can actually be sexually abused while parents sit back and smile. Now, the appropriate response to, to that kind of behavior is seen actually in some of these small children, as you can see. Now, some of these kids do what the Bible says, and out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, we see them responding to these drag queens in the way that, uh, that you really should, peeling back in utter horror and disgust. Unfortunately, there are parents there, and this is the real big issue. It's not the fact that drag queens wish to dress as drag queens. The real issue is that parents wish to bring their very small children to these drag queen shows. And as you can see on the screen, give their children money so that they can hand them off to these drag queens as though they were strippers. Good job, parents. Way to make sure your kids are ready for life. Now, the reason I bring all of that up is, well, first of all, side note, because I don't want to forget to say this. It's awfully interesting to me that the family-friendly drag queen show, quote-unquote, is usually focused on a young family with very young children, predominantly because young families are composed of young parents who are basically idiots who have not yet learned about what adulthood actually is. More than that, it's also focused on young families because you can only imagine what would happen if teenage boys were in a setting like that. We're in a setting like this where very large men are being shoved into very tight women's clothing. I mean, it's a field day for a teenage boy and all of the jokes that they might be able to make about a setting like this. But no, this is typically focused on very small children who cannot think for themselves and who are very impressionable. And this really is the sickening thing about these kind of displays at the end of the day. Now, while even as a Christian, I say, you know, to a certain extent, this is a free country and you can do what you want. But I also step back and say, you can do what you want, but you cannot do what you want with kids, even when parents like SEALs sit back and approve of this kind of thing. You know, conservatives and Christians were made fun of in the past because uh, we said that, you know, things like, okay, groomer, and uh, don't come for our kids. And then you have the San Francisco men's choir doing little parodies like this that are meant to be funny. We'll convert your children. Happens bit by bit, quietly and subtly, and you will barely notice it. And the implication with a video like this is that 
hey, we're making fun of you guys who are overreacting about the fact that we're coming for your kids. We're not coming for your kids. We just want the same freedoms you have to be able to love who we want to love and do what we want to in our own bedrooms. Well, that's all up until they actually start coming for our kids, which is clear that these individuals are interested in that. Now, I want to be careful because it's not all individuals, but it certainly is these individuals. So it's not everybody in the homosexual community, but it is a certain subset of the woke liberal ideologues who wish to indoctrinate small children into this kind of sexual ideology. And it's always small children. It's never kids who can think for themselves or have the capacity for rational thought. It's always small kids. Now, I do have to say something about this. It's very interesting to me that we've been told most of our lives that you are born gay and that there's nothing you can do about it. And how can I change who I really, truly am on the inside? Why do these people have to work so hard to indoctrinate very small children if this is actually just a very natural thing that that grown people do and that there's nothing that people can do about it and that it's just bred into them. It's in their DNA. It's in their genes. There's something about it. We can't find a gay gene, but trust me, it's there. If that is true, then why do these people have to work so hard to focus and target on children and shove this in their face? The reality is, is straight people aren't shoving heterosexual sex and heterosexual promiscuity in the face of small children. So this is not even whataboutism. This is a double standard that clearly exists on the left who wants to target children, which shows that the okay groomer thing is not that far-fetched. Now, the reason you should care about this, I guess, is multiple things. Is Like I just illustrated, one, kids are involved. And that changes the game a little bit. That's crossing over a line that demands our attention. But perhaps if that doesn't, and if that doesn't, I don't know what will get your attention. But if that doesn't, then perhaps you also need to consider this. Chattanooga Pride, or Tennessee Valley Pride, is a LGBTQIA plus advocacy organization that put on these series of shows over the weekend and decided to, in September for some reason, have a Pride Week. And they are responsible for doing some other things that I think that you should know about. In fact, just last year in July, they teamed up with the Edwin to put on a fundraiser of sorts. And you can see right here, I'm putting up on their website what they did. On July 17th of 2021, the Chattanooga Pride Board partnered with Whiskey Thief, which is a restaurant in the Edwin Hotel. And they partnered with them to raise money for the Hamilton County bailout fund. So from 3 to 5 p.m., 50% of everything that was made in that period of time went to the Hamilton County bailout fund. Now, I should explain that the Edwin is a very, very nice hotel that's on the river here in Chattanooga. Um, it's a, a four-star, if not five-star hotel and a place that my wife and I have frequented in the past. And that will come into play here in just a moment. But they teamed up with Chattanooga Pride for the Hamilton County Bailout Fund. Now, what is the Hamilton County Bailout Fund? Well, that's an organization that bails out people who have been accused of a crime. Anybody that's been accused of a crime, they think that should have the presumption of innocence, shouldn't have to spend a second in jail. So out of this 501c3 organization's coffers, they'll give money to anybody who committed a crime and has bail under the amount of $5,000. Now, I saw some varying things online, whether it's $10,000 or $5,000, so I'm going with the conservative $5,000 uh, bailout fund. 
So you might be asking yourself right about this time, well, what kind of crimes come with a total of around about $5,000 in bail or lower than that? Well, here are the kind of crimes that Chattanooga Pride and the Edwin Hotel is bailing people out of. So these are crimes like voyeurism, the unlawful transmission of sexually explicit material. This is things like even terrorism and harassment and enticing children and public displays of lewdness and many, many more. So as you can see, there's a panoply of different crimes that fall under the auspices of the bailout fund that it was being raised by Chattanooga Pride and the Edwin Hotel. So I bring up the Edwin and Chattanooga Pride in the Hamilton County bailout fund because it's perfectly within bounds and legitimate to suggest that the Edwin was working with groomers to release pedophiles back out on the street. And that's at least to say a little bit troubling. So I alluded to the fact that uh, when preparing for this part, Shia spent some time with some, some fathers and spent some time trying to really engage uh, with Catholicism. And it is here where he found the secret of prayer. And I thought that there's some pretty interesting things here. So here's a clip of, him, of Shia LaBeouf talking about his experience praying. And I don't know nothing about prayer because I can't cultivate uh, an unforgiving, I, I don't know anything about silence. I don't know anything about quiet. I don't know anything about it. I got a cell phone in my phone that will give me everything my ego needs. It's buzzing all the time. I got all this, you know, I, there is no silence or I don't know anything about meditation. Meditation at this point in my life feels like a self-imposed timeout. Prayer feels like I'm memorizing somebody else's words, like I'm an actor, yeah. like I'm doing monologues for myself in my head. And Alex says, uh, just go into that chapel and just shut up. Where the blessed sacrament is. Yes, yeah. and just sit there. Just sit right. there and be quiet. And, um, and, and that feels like a very strange thing to tell me, and I'm also rebelling. And right around this time, you and the deacons show up for like this deacons meeting. Well, that's the first time I met you, It's the right. first time I meet you. Yeah, okay. The deacons are all hanging out at the church. Right. Right. And you do, this, you do this talk about prayer yeah. and how it's really a simple... Uh, four-step process prayer, you know, and, and I needed somebody to simplify it for me because it felt like, one, I needed, I needed it to be defined. I didn't want it to be this esoteric. I needed something very defined and very practical. I needed something very, like, boots on the ground. And you said, quiet leads to loving thoughts. Loving thoughts leads to loving action. Loving action leads to peace. And that hit me heavy. As and Mother then, Teresa I was quoting there. That's Whoever her. it was, it's yeah. changed my life. And so we're praying the rosary and I'm waiting for loving thoughts and it's not my first or second or third or fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh thought. But then I hear a thought like, call your mother, tell her you love her. Now me and my mother at this time, my mother don't want nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the news that had come out has been like I've been abusive to women and I've been shooting dogs and I've been willingly giving women STDs and like there's, it's disgusting. It's depraved. And my mother is embarrassed beyond all imagination. She doesn't want nothing to do with me. And we hadn't talked. And I'm living in this parking lot. And, and I get out of rosary with you, and I call my mother, and, uh, and I say, uh, I don't have much to say to you, but I love you and I'm safe. And she said, oh, I'm so grateful. Hmm. And she hangs up the phone, and it's the first time I had really like, talked to my mother, and I felt this peace. Because I had all this resentment and animosity, like, how could you dip on me? You're my mother. You know, no matter what happens, like, this is conditional love that you offer me. So, you know, uh, then I start reading the confessions by Augustine and his mother mm -hmm. and that relationship. Yeah, and like, right. everything starts to feel like click, 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 click. 
Right. And Augustine being like a hedonist who had made all these yeah. flaws. And then, then they started explaining Francis to me and all this ego that was yeah. in Francis. Yeah. Just a complete egomaniac. Right. Yeah, like, and, and I start feeling all these connections and I start seeing this route. And, the, 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 and it says, let go. And, and, and I, like, I find a, a way for myself. I mean, so that's super powerful, in, in my opinion. And, and this is what I think about when, when I hear him talk about prayer. It makes me think about the power of silence. And I do question, in what other way are you going to hear that message in today's society? Where else, what other institution is going to, to encourage you to shut up? I mean, we are encouraged everywhere to talk as much as possible. And this is coming from a guy, by the way, me, who uh, speaks out on as many topics as I possibly can. And I do believe that the voice of truth, um, that the voice of scripture, the, that the Bible, as, as appropriately understood as possible, should invade in every institution as much as possible. I, I often say this, that I think Christians should be informed on as many different positions as possible so that the supremacy of Christ can be heard in every area of life. There is no place, in other words, where Jesus is not king. That's true of the political. That's true of the personal. That's true of everything. So, so there, we should voice as much as we can, um, our thoughts and the thoughts of scripture on, on, on subjects on, on a multitude of, of areas. So I say all that to say also the other side of that coin though is this, is that there also is great benefit in silence. There also is great benefit in letting go of the idea that you are in control of everything. And I know no other institution in society today that is going to encourage that message. And it shows that there's things in the church that, that draw us to it beyond what we often think. If we push aside kind of some of the silly arguments of the new atheists and the likes of people like Sam Harris and the pejorative kind of like, oh yeah, well, God told you to kill such and such in the Old Testament. And you actually get to the heart of what Christianity is actually about. It, you, you hear things like this that you often don't hear in the mainstream, that there is benefit to shutting up. And one of the best ways to shut up is to go into a place of prayer where you can contemplate and you can shut out the outside world. And, and there, there is something that happens in that moment that is, that is very special. So, um, so already here from Shia LaBeouf and from this movie, we're gaining some, some insight into some pretty important things that we're not hearing about. So here's another clip that I think is really, really important for us to dig into. Uh, and tears had a lot to do with it. Augustine was like a hyper intellectual, but man, there's like tears on every page of the Confessions. Yeah. And he starts weeping as he yeah. listens to uh, Ambrose, you know? Yeah. So that's a story from so many centuries ago, but it's your story in many ways. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um... Yeah, and I'm I'm experiencing a lot of that also. But also, it, it, the weird thing is is like separating what if this is actually happening to me for me, and what if this is like PO and this film and preparation and the separation. You know, I, I'm I, I, before this movie, I'm chasing no separation, but here it felt even further. And there was a certain point where Abel's like asking me to do an accent. Because yeah, you didn't do an accent. No. You just spoke no, in your American. Yeah, because at a certain point, like I prayed on it. You yeah. know, and I thought, this is the separation I'm not after. This feels like, like, okay, now I'm just like wearing a mask, like a PO mask. Yeah, right. Whereas um, it felt like the task wasn't that. The task, even beyond what the director was asking of me, and he found a way to find the same kind of uh he found my reasoning just was that I was having like genuine 
while we were practicing Latin Mass, I was having genuine emotional experiences. Mm-hmm. And be, aside from the fact that, you know, as a, a Neapolitan speaker, his accent would have matched Italian anyway. But it felt like I, 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 that would have taken me out of this yeah, thing right. that felt very personal. And um, so we didn't do an accent because I felt like what was happening to me was like, like some kind of vessel. I'm not going to get too cheesy about it, but it felt like um, like I wasn't it was I wasn't in control of a lot, a lot of the stuff that was happening. There wasn't a whole lot of like emotional actor prep. It was like very prayerful. When I felt like I couldn't hit a moment, I would, me and Alex would like we would pray, and then it would come. Like the emotion would just come. Pio was a very emotional guy. All right. Now the reason I wanted to show that clip is that it's a great kind of addendum to what we just heard about prayer kind of like where the you stops and the silence begins and maybe the place where you can hear the voice of god because we just kind of heard that in the wrestling match that shia was having with how much to act and how much to let this come into him and how much does this have to do with the kind of like spiritual experience that he's that he's receiving throughout all of this endeavor and and how much of this is it just a job you know so all of these emotions and things are coming at the same time he's got this very technical task to do to be an actor and and so he alludes to the fact that there is this moment where he's acting but also he's experiencing these great emotional you know moments as he's doing this that something is happening inside of him so it again it brings us to this to this question um, and, and, it, and it's, again, the question of prayer and silence and all that kind of stuff. But it's the question also of spiritual experience. And it's the question of when does rhetoric stop and when does the supernatural, the spiritual, or even if you want to go as far as this and don't make the mistake of totally equating these two, but isn't that kind of the dance of life? Not only is this kind of the dance of prayer where it's like where, where you end and God begins, but it's also the dance of life of, of understanding like at what point in time are, are there things out there that you have yet to experience that you know are available, but that you don't know how to access them? Um, and 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 those things that you do know and how you often just like take control and you try to um, do what you know and the experiences that you've had and you let those kind of at the forefront. I guess at the end of the day, what I'm saying is, is that yet another opportunity from this movie and from Shai's experience to kind of help us maybe think about something that's important, to think about how you are more than just flesh and bone, but that you are also a soul. This is the problem with identity politics, is that it, it, it equates you to nothing more than your exterior, to the color of your skin and to your gender and, and, to, and to all of those things. Um, this, is, this is the problem with so much of the leftist ideology of our day, is that it has a fundamental flaw in its understanding of what human nature is. It's way more robust, way more vast than we can possibly give it credit for. And this is why I love these kind of experiences and these kind of stories with Shia um, that take place, but also these kind of films, when, when we dig into them, how they can help us think beyond the natural and perhaps enter into the supernatural. Now, uh, the thing that is not Christian is not the the trailer to the season three of The Chosen, and I'll try to show you why. However, I do believe that it deserves some conversation. Before we get into the controversy and what actually sparked it, let me show you the trailer and we'll see if you can pick it up. If you are really the one who is to come, should we look for someone else? Go and tell John what you hear and see. Who is it? Where did we stop? It's him. I'm Judas of Keriot. 
And I have chosen you twelve as my apostles. Don't feel any different? I don't need you to feel anything to do great things. What is stirring in your hearts? In the middle of such division and unrest? Is Father God being revealed to you? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A scourge of false prophecy must stop. Jesus, if you do not renounce your words, we will have no choice but to follow the law of Moses. All right, did you get it? If not, here it is again in slow-mo. I am the law of Moses. That's right. This quote from Jesus, I am the law of Moses, has been circulating all over the internet as of late. Now, when the trailer first came out, it was viral. People were loving on it and said they can't wait for the season to come out. And then, slowly but surely, the conversation started to change. And the conversation was around that quote from Jesus, I am the law of Moses. And a lot of people said, well, this is a quote directly from the Book of Mormon. And it proves that, once again, the Chosen is influenced by the Church of Latter-day Saints, by Mormons who are out there and, um, and by behind the production of this this chosen series. Now, the real question is, are people looking for drama or is there something to this? And should we even talk about it in the first place? And I'm gonna say, obviously, yeah, because we're talking about it today. Before we get into the actual conversation about the quote, where it comes from, is it from the Book of Mormon, and is the controversy rightly deserved? Um, I just want to say this. I think it is fair to state, and I did a video about this in the past, that, that Dallas kind of brought this controversy upon himself. In the past, when he was tasked with explaining comments that uh, Mormons believe in the same Jesus that evangelicals do, he didn't do a great job of defending himself. So here's my kind of uh, response to that. Um, evangelicals and LDS love the same Jesus, or LDS are Christians, that would be a problem, and here's why. Not because there aren't LDS folks who are Christians, and not because there aren't LDS and evangelicals who love the same Jesus, but because it would be wrong of me to ever say that any one group believes any one thing altogether. What did you just say? Roll the tape back one more time. Not because there aren't LDS folks who are Christians, and not because there aren't LDS and evangelicals who love the same Jesus. Yeah, that's what I thought you said. Okay, so let, let's get this straight. So he was misrepresented and misinterpreted when he said that Christians and Mormons love the same Jesus. That, that's the contention that he just got done telling us. And then he goes forward and doubles down and says, Christians and Mormons do love the same Jesus, but just not all of them. So he literally thinks that the, the problem Christians have is his use of the word all, rather than the fact that there is this idea that any Mormons can be Christians. So to simply say that, no, I didn't say all Mormons or all LDS believe in the same Jesus as evangelicals, just my Mormon friends over here believe in the same Jesus, doesn't alleviate the tension at all from the fact that 
In fact, Mormons don't believe in the same Jesus as the Jesus of Scripture and the Jesus that evangelicals believe in. So he didn't do a great job of distancing himself back then, so it's no wonder that people are still curious as to what may be influencing some of the writing of The Chosen. So I think the questions are fair game as we launch into them. Now, before we get to the major question, I do want you to hear what Dallas has to say at the beginning of his defense of the season three trailer, or at least his comments about it, because I think he's got some good insight that is helpful to all of us. So here's him talking about how to respond to people and healthy ways to respond to people online. Heart, there's no room for for figures of speech. <laughs> you're just uh, you're you're just saying things so straightforward that especially when it comes to art, there's really no life in it. Um, but again, it's a it's a very important principle to worry about truth far more than what people might misunderstand because that's going to happen no matter what. Now here's the most important thing. I really don't care about avoiding criticism or trying to gain praise. Now, I want to stop for just a moment to give credit where credit is due. I think Dallas is right here about people-pleasing and about caring more about the truth than you are about being attacked online or being mischaracterized. Uh, I think this is an important point coming from somebody who is in the public spotlight in a way that few people will be. I think we have to be able to sympathize here and say, hey, being in Dallas's shoes is probably not an easy thing, and the source material is certainly not the easiest thing to tackle. However, he doesn't ask for that kind of pity, but I do believe it's warranted. But more importantly, it's important not to people please and not to get off track when being attacked, whether it's online or whatever the case may be in public conversation, and, and this does happen a lot to Christians. When we get defensive with our position, what we're actually showing to people is that we maintain a position that we are insecure with and that needs to be defended. Atheists kind of, this is a field day for them because then what they do is they, they consistently attack without ever having to defend their own positions. So we have to get better at not being defensive when people are mischaracterizing what we have to say or attacking us. And I think that this is just really good, useful information. This is something C.S. Lewis actually called bulverism, and, and it happens a lot online. And it has happened to me. It's when somebody purposefully mischaracterizes what you're trying to say or avoids the evidence that you're presenting and then says something ridiculous in its place. Uh, for instance, so you could say, hey, we have some evidence that miracles exist. I mean, we have things that happen all the time that modern science can't explain. How did the barren woman actually be able to produce a child? How did the person that was in the car accident actually survive when surely it should have killed them? So at least it's something that is worth considering before we say miracles never happen. And typically what the hater or the person that is wishing to attack a position will often say is something ridiculous like, oh, okay, miracles exist, then I suppose unicorns exist also. So you see, they're purposefully trying to avoid the very important argument that was just put forth, or at least the one that has some merit to it, and putting forth a very meritless argument. This is also a, a tactic similar to straw manning. So, so it's really important that when attacked, we are not defensive. All right, so I think that's just good advice, but let's move on to the next point, because the next point he makes, I think, is something that deserves some attention, because he just says that, well, we should never respond to criticism and you don't want me to produce a show where I respond to criticism. Well, I'm not so sure about that, so let's listen. See, 
I got to a point a couple of years ago where God took away any desire to please, any time, any desire to people please. Um, and I started to replace any narcissistic thoughts that I had or desire, what the Bible calls fear of man, um, any desire to get affirmation. I started to replace those thoughts with scripture and it became a little bit of a superpower. And I think it's a really important principle. Um, when you when you don't do things to please people or avoid criticism, uh, you you really start doing things to please God, and that's an extraordinarily important principle. And and when it comes to the chosen, never once have I actually said or done something. Never once have we as a team said or done something to try to avoid criticism or to gain more praise. As we turn toward the actual question at hand, this point is very critical. Dallas tells us it's bad art to be overly concerned about critics. I totally agree on one hand. However, we can have haters for two reasons, at least because hate is going to hate or because haters are pointing out something that needs to be pointed out. For instance, the crowd reaction to Disney, like all of their movies, and most recently, the Amazon Rings of Power, Power is rightly earned. Amazon Rings of Power was a complete cesspool of garbage. And it needed to be called out. The fact that those writers lack the spiritual and creative ability to write something as beautiful as Tolkien is total fair play. For the writers to dismiss fans as racist, trolls, right-wing extremists, and, and more is simply to, to try to shelve rightly deserved criticism. Now, with starving people all over the world, the least Amazon could do was invest a billion dollars in something not so dumb. And quite frankly, Fans calling that out actually provides an opportunity for them to change course. So I'm going to say this. I think criticism, if done the correct way, is absolutely vital to the creative process. So yes and no. This is where we get back to the golden mean. Should Dallas be overly concerned with critics? No. Should he be concerned with critics? Well, if they have something valid to say. So let's turn our attention then to the Book of Mormon, and whether or not Dallas quoted it. So here's what he has to say about that. Of course, I'm not quoting from the Book of Mormon. I've never read the Book of Mormon. The first time I spent too much time, not to, I shouldn't take too much time, to, any time on this, was after people started saying I was quoting from the Book of Mormon. So I went and checked it out. I'm like, actually, I'm not. It's not the same quote. But even if it was, it doesn't really matter. Um, because I still stand by, uh, by the quote. So did Jesus and the Chosen quote the Book of Mormon? Well, to answer that question, we have to look at the verse in the Book of Mormon. So we turn to three, third Nephi 15.9, and it says this, Behold, I am the law and the light. Look unto me and endure to the end, and ye shall live. For unto him that endureth to the end will I give eternal life. So I think it's fair to say, at least technically, no. This isn't him saying, I am the law of Moses in the Book of Mormon. So I think it's fair to say technically no. However, the bigger question remains, and this is where I think criticism is well-deserved. Is Jesus the law of Moses? So push the Mormon conspiracy to the side, and let's actually get to the quote of Jesus here. Well, the answer to that is no. The reason Jesus never said, I am the law in the Bible but only said, I came to fulfill the law, because in point of fact, Jesus is the opposite of the law. Now, far be it from me to suggest that that means that Jesus is contrary to the law or that there is an animosity toward the law in the New Testament. Jesus is clear. He said that he came to fulfill the law. And Jesus is the remedy for the law. So Jesus cannot be the thing he is the remedy for.